0: audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9.45 or 11.30 a.m. in Pembroke Pines, Florida or online at westpines.org. There's something about the Christmas season that makes us have this instinct to pull together, to come together. In fact, togetherness, togetherness, going home for the holidays or are or, or, or part of the songs that we sing, I'll be home for Christmas. We think about being home. We think about being with family, getting together. For some of you, maybe your whole family gets together. It's Christmas Eve, the night before Christmas, and you've got 47 cousins that all come together and 13 aunts and uncles and, and everyone's all together and it's this big party. Maybe for some of you, it's Christmas morning and everyone goes to one house to, to open up presents. It's just there's something about Christmas that's there's a togetherness as a main theme of Christmas time. And I always think back to how that was a theme in the house that I grew up in. We always hosted, uh, my grandparents would always come into town. They'd come from down here to South Florida. They lived um, in Central Florida and they would drive down here. And there's always these traditions for each of the family members. Uh, my grandfather is, his family's from Denmark. He's Danish. And that side of the family, we have a Danish heritage. And there's one thing us proud Danes are known for: it's pastries. Okay? We're proud of our pastries, our Danishes. And there's a certain type of Danish that the Danish are especially proud of. Okay, it's not just like an a uh, little pastry. Okay, there's a special kind of pastry that the Danish are very proud of. It's called Kringle. And my grandfather, who grew up in a Danish community in uh, northern Wisconsin, we would actually, there's a Danish bakery, we would actually ship Kringle in to our house. Every year, and it was, we always look forward to it, we still do it, even though my, my grandfather's passed away, we, we would all, we still ship in Kringle from Wisconsin into, uh, into our home, and I remember every single year, we would give it to my grandfather on Christmas Eve, it was selfish because we all wanted to eat some of it, and um, we'd give it to him on Christmas Eve, and every single Christmas Eve, he would forget And he'd open up be like, wow, it's Kringle from Wisconsin. And every single year, it would play over and over. And we would have been disappointed if you remember. Like every year, it was the surprise. And there's always little things. My sister, she was always, whether she was 5 or 25, she was always the first person up. She was trying to wake everybody up. Okay, it's like 5.45 in the morning. No one else wants to be up. but She's bouncing around the house, waking everyone up to open up presents. My grandparents would sit over there and they were the ones that wanted to save the wrapping paper. Okay, do you have one of those in your house? That's the worst, okay? I'm just. <laughs> they wanted to save the wrapping paper and they would open up. And if you're a little kid, it takes seven and a half minutes to open a present. You're like calculating, you're like, this is torture. They're taking so long. And they're folding the paper. And there's all these little traditions that you have. There's something about being together at Christmas time. But there's an interesting dynamic happening at the same time. Because we may have all people around us in our life, but there's also sometimes sneaking in under the surface. There can be elements of Christmas time, the holiday season, that even though there's people all around us, loneliness can creep in. We can have all of our family, all of our friends, our coworkers at Christmas parties, but there can be a subtle reminder of loneliness. It can be a loneliness of grief. It can be a loneliness of wondering if we're the only one that knows about the hurt we're feeling. It can be a loneliness of facing a crisis and feeling like we're on our own. It could be a loneliness of feeling rejection. It could be just a pure loneliness of not knowing who's in your corner. And sometimes what's so deceiving about it is we've got all the festivities, but yet that is sneaking in under the surface. I want to take a second this morning as we unpack this passage in the Bible and talk about how in the midst of the weariness that is can, that can be our loneliness, how the story of Christmas, the story of the Son of God coming to earth, is truly a thrill of hope for us in the midst of loneliness. We're going to look at a passage in the book of Hebrews. If you would turn to the book of Hebrews, that's what we've been studying through this series. We're looking at the first couple verses of Hebrews. And here's why. It is one of the most beautiful, rich descriptions of who Jesus is. In fact, the language in Hebrews, especially if you were to go to the original Greek, the ancient Greek that it was written in, if you look at that, it is some of the most rich, most sophisticated language you can find in the entire New Testament. And it's got this lofty, glorious description of who Jesus is. And we're going to look at it and see how it plays itself out in the Christmas story. We're going to look at Hebrews. We're going to start in chapter 1, Hebrews 1. And let's start at verse 1. It says this. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. All right, let's just get a little context of what's happening here in the book of Hebrews. It's called Hebrews because that's the audience of the book. The audience of the book is the nation of Israel, but it's also very instructive for all of us. But it's specifically written to the nation of Israel. And the author of Hebrews is saying, man, God has spoken to us. He's spoken to our fathers. He's spoken into us as a people. God has spoken to us. And it's making this powerful statement about God. It's saying that God didn't just wind up the universe. He didn't just create the universe, wind it up like a wind-up toy and let it go and then just kind of wander off to do his own thing and let us figure things out. No, he, he is speaking to us. He's aware, he's in the moment with his universe, and he's wanting to speak into his universe specifically to us. And this author is saying that's the kind of God that we have. He's a God that wants us to know who he is. He wants to speak into our lives. He wants to speak into our existence. He doesn't want us to wander around and have to figure it out on our own. He's speaking into us. And so this author says God's spoken to us in a bunch of different ways. He's spoken to our fathers. He's spoken to the world through our country, our nation, our culture of Israel. And he's spoken through these specific people along the way, these prophets. He says he's done it in all different ways. He says sometimes these prophets they would receive the law from God and it would set up the the way that they would worship and the way that they would act, and God is speaking through those laws. He said some they were writing down the history, and God was speaking through them as they would record the history of our nation and would speak through that. Others, he's saying he's speaking through their, through our poets, he spoke through our songwriters. And sometimes he just spoke to these prophets where he'd say, just go say this to my people. And he'd give them the actual words to say. He said spoken all in all these different ways. And what's beautiful about about the story of history is all of those times that God spoke to humanity through this people, this nation of Israel, was recorded down and God preserved it. And it's what we have now we call the Old Testament. And he says, man, God has spoken in all these different ways to humanity. But then he says this, did you notice this part? But here lately, he spoke to us through his son. See, this is the first generation of eyewitnesses that saw Jesus. And they're saying, and God spoke to us through his son. He's been speaking through all these prophets and now through this person of Jesus. So let's just pause for a second. Where is he going in this this whole description? He's going to describe who this person is, Jesus, that God spoke through. And you might actually be here this morning, and you might be in a place where you're like, actually, I'm wrestling with who Jesus is myself. I'm not really sure. You might go out to anywhere in our culture, and you might say, who's Jesus? And you'd probably at very least hear this. He was a great rabbi. He was a great teacher. Someone might say, he, you know, he, he was a, a godly person. Someone might actually say he was a prophet. And if we stopped at this verse, it'd be a little bit unclear as to who this person is. But what the Bible declares about Jesus is absolutely astounding. And if you're kind of wrestling with who Jesus is, this is a great morning for you to be here because I want you to see clearly what the Bible says about Jesus so you can be wrestling with the claims about Jesus. Let's take a pause on on Hebrews for a second. And I want to remind you of the Christmas story. Remember the Christmas story where um, Mary, she is a virgin, she's a young woman, she's engaged to be married. And um, it says that that God, the Holy Spirit came on her. God created life in her womb. Remember, she's she's a virgin, but she's pregnant. And remember, she goes to her fiance and she says, Hey Joseph, the craziest thing happened I gotta tell you about. So it turns out I'm pregnant. But don't worry, it was God who did it. And Joseph said, oh, okay, good. I was wondering, but I'm glad to hear that, it, that it, was, you know, it was God. Okay, that makes sense. Remember, that's not exactly what happens. Joseph's like, okay, all right, thank you. But he says he's a godly man. He says he cares. Obviously, he loves her. And he says, so he's going to break off the engagement quietly. Because he doesn't believe her. And it says an angel comes and speaks to him. And says, Joseph, no, you need to stay with Mary. What she said is true. God came on her and created life in her. And then he, the angel quotes a prophecy that's hundreds of years old and reminds him, he says, remember, hundreds of years ago in the Old Testament, remember, this is what was promised would happen. And he reads or he quotes to Joseph this prophecy. It's in Matthew 1, verse 23. It says this, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. He says, Joseph, remember, this has been sitting around in the scripture for hundreds of years. I know you're shocked because it's happening to you, but this was promised because this Messiah that, that, that you've been waiting for, that, you're, that the world has been waiting for, he will be called. It's like he's saying, this is why this arrangement of God creating life inside a woman who's never slept with a man this is why this is so important. Because who is, this, who is this child? It's God with us. This child will be bringing the presence of God to earth. Okay, what exactly does that mean? Let's jump back in to the book of Hebrews. Let's look at verse 2 again. It says this, But in these last days he spoke to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Now listen to this. Listen to how it describes Jesus. Through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, I want to just spend some time this morning on the way Jesus was just described. Did you hear these phrases? I mean, crazy. It says, through Jesus, God created the world. He says he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He says through him he upholds the universe by the word of his power. It's just heaping these descriptors, these superlatives about who this person is, just heaping them on top of each other, trying to help us grasp who Jesus is. Now, do you remember that movie, um, The Sandlot? Anyone seen the movie, The, The Sandlot? It's a great movie. And in this movie, they're describing a baseball player. And it's not uncommon for athletes to be described in these terms. But they're describing this baseball player, and they say, He's the Sultan of SWAT. He's the king of crash, the Colossus of clout. They say, He's the great Bambino. Remember that? Who, Who are they talking about? Babe Ruth. They're just piling all these superlatives to describe. They're building him up larger than life. And there's a sense in which you've got Hebrews. He's, they're just piling. I mean, there's just this beauty. There's this poetic value to this section in Hebrews. Is just piling on these superlatives, these descriptors about Jesus. Just making him humongous in our minds. So what is the author of Hebrews doing? Is he just exaggerating to get us to grasp how powerful Jesus is? Well, no doubt there's a good rhythm to this and there's a beauty in the way he's describing it. But what he's saying, he's trying to be as crisp and clear as to who Jesus is. He's not exaggerating a bit. Listen to this first one that he said. He said, through him, God created the world. Is Jesus a, a good man, a teacher, a rabbi, a prophet? He says, through Jesus, he created The world. He's associating Jesus with the creation of everything. In fact, If you are to look at the original language, the, the word there for world, that they're describing world, there's a much more common Greek word for world. It's cosmos, where we get the word cosmos from. And it's not using that. It's got a different word that the best way we can figure out how to translate it is world or even ages. And what they're doing, it's like he zoomed out and he picked a word that made him zoom out as far as possible to describe how he created everything. He's saying he didn't just create matter and molecules and that rock and that plant. He didn't just create the kingdom, the animal kingdom. He didn't just create the universe. He's saying he created time itself. He's saying there was nothing and then God made something. Not that God was there in outer space, just kind of alone. No, there wasn't even outer space. There was nothing, just God. It goes outside of what we can comprehend. And it's saying, okay, well, man, did the author of Hebrews just kind of go off his rocker here and just kind of really go off into some strange doctrine? No, listen to this. In the book of Colossians, I just want you to hear this. This is Paul. This is how Paul describes Jesus. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. This is how John describes Jesus. He says, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. It's associating Jesus with the creation of everything. Who's Jesus? Talking about God here. He says, through him, everything was created. And then he says this beautiful phrase. The second thing he just heaps on him. You're talking about, you're seeing God the creator. And then he's just pouring this next phrase. He says, he is the radiance of the glory of God. A beautiful phrase. What does he mean by the glory of God? Well, the way the Bible describes what it would be like to stand right before God it says that if you and I were to stand, if God was just to appear and we were to stand before God, God said, no one can look on the face of God and live we would be so overwhelmed by the most powerful being in all the universe, the one that, it, that the universe is a small thing for him, an uncomplicated thing. We'd be so overwhelmed by his power, so overwhelmed and intimidated by his perfect holiness. The way it describes people who have been in the presence of God, even just in a vision, they feel like they're going to die. They throw themselves on the ground and feel like their molecules are about to burst apart. And the way it's described is it's almost like this shining, the the glory of God is the best way they can. They can describe it. In fact, when Moses, who was in the presence of God, he didn't see the face of God, but he was in the presence of God when he got the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. They don't really depict this as much in the movies, but when he comes down the mountain, you know what the Bible describes? It says his face was so shining that they're saying, they're like, Moses, we can't even look at your face, which had to be comfortable for Moses to hear. We can't even look at your face, Moses. Like, you've got to cover it with a veil. They made him go around with a veil over his face because it just had, had caught some of the glory of God and they couldn't even look at it. And so what the author of Hebrews is describing Jesus, he's like, he's the radiance of the glory of God. So I want to show you this picture. Go ahead and pull up this picture. I want you to think of it like this. This is kind of an imperfect illustration. We can't look, you and I, if we tried to look at the sun, even though it's millions of miles away, if we stared at the sun, it would actually burn our eyeballs. But there there are times that the rays are shooting out, the radiance are shooting out, and we can see the radiance of the sun. Now here's kind of, the author of Hebrews, this kind of imperfect illustration. He says, I know that God is invisible. And so we're trying to figure out what's God like. But God appeared in the flesh And we can see the character of God because it was God in the flesh through Jesus. I want you to think, what's your your picture of God? When you think of God, what do you picture God like? Do you think of a, a guy with like a big beard up on a cloud, like a far side cartoon? You know, he's in a robe. He's holding a lightning bolt, you know, up there. It's like an angel with a harp next to him. I mean, what do you think of God? Maybe when you think of God you think like you grew up in Catholic school and there was this really stern nun that you had to deal with and, and that's kind of you must think that God must be really stern. Or maybe there was a, a a grandparent who was always just, you know, very religious grandparent and they're always just kind of always watching any misstep, I mean whether it was your grammar or or you wore a hat inside the house or whatever it was, they're always ready to correct just a little bit. And so maybe you're you're thinking about well this is how God is. He's looking at all my little imperfections and he's always going to correct. Or maybe it was a parent that was always disappointed, and you think about that must be how God is—he's always ready to be disappointed. But you know, God said, "I know that I'm invisible, and I know that I'm I'm protecting you by not just appearing in front of you because you would die. So let me give you a perfect picture of who I am. It's Jesus, God in the flesh. What do you know about Jesus? One night the disciples were in a boat, and most of them were many of them were were fishermen, so they grew up on boats." they're on the Sea of Galilee, and man, a storm can come up in the Sea of Galilee like this. And all of a sudden, a storm just blew in, and it was a bad one by even their standards. They grew up in that area, but this was a bad storm. Waves, huge waves knocking them around. They're about to to capsize, but Jesus had gone off to pray. He was up in the mountain and praying. So his friends, the ones that are closest to him, are in the midst of this raging storm. They're facing possibly drowning. No one's going to come out. There's no Coast Guard in the Sea of Galilee. They're going to come out and save them. They're facing drowning, and what do you picture God doing? What do you picture Jesus? Is he up on the mountain, and is he conjuring up the storm to teach them a lesson on faith? He comes walking on the, on the water. He comes walking to them. They call out to him, and he stops, and he climbs in the boat, and he stops the storm. What is God's character like? He's the type of one that enters into, into the storm with those he loves. What's, what do you know about Jesus? Well, there was this leper, and if you know anything about leprosy in the ancient times, there was this terrible, ugly, hideous skin disease that could make parts of your body fall off. And no one wanted it. They thought it was extremely contagious. So if you had leprosy, you had to live outside of the city in a little leper camp. And there was a leper that came through, and he saw Jesus. He was probably covered, so people didn't see his disfigurement, and people were p- probably you know, separating to get away from him. And he falls down, and he says, Jesus, Jesus, please heal me. And what did Jesus do? He'd back up and say, okay, just don't touch me. You're healed. Now, now go on. Just get, get away. No, he knelt down. And he puts his hands on his shoulders. And that might have been the first time that leper had had a warm touch in years. And he said, you're healed. What do you know about Jesus? He was traveling to Jerusalem and they go through Samaria and they come up on a on a well, and there's a woman there and she's now known as the Samaritan woman and she's at the well, it's the middle of the day and she's there by herself. Now historians have said there's two odd things by that. First of all, if you were a woman in that culture that was going to get water, you would not go in the middle of the day. You'd go in the morning and you'd never be by yourself. You'd be with a group of women. So why is she alone? And we learn later probably why she's alone because she has a reputation of sleeping around. And so we can kind of piece together what's happening. She's been rejected. The other women don't want to be around her. They don't let her walk with them. They've rejected her because of the decisions that she's made in her life. And what's ironic is probably she's been been choosing that lifestyle because she's lonely and she wants to be valuable to someone. She wants to be someone's treasure. She wants to have the affection from someone. And the irony is the painful position that she's in of all these decisions she's made and now she's alone at the well. But Jesus walks up, and he breaks all social norms, and he begins talking with her. And he speaks into her life, and he right there, he accepts her and pours value into her. What do you know about Jesus? You know that there's a moment in his ministry where his best friend got sick, one of his best friends. See, he had this family he was so close with. It was Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha. And one of his closest friends gets sick, Lazarus. And before he gets there, Lazarus dies. And he shows up in their town and there's just grief just emanating from this town. People crying and wailing and Jesus knows what he's going to do. This is the one who, through whom the world was created. He's going to walk in there and he's going to make it right. He's going to raise Lazarus back from the dead. And that's what he ends up doing. He's going to raise Lazarus back from the dead. And so how does Jesus enter in? Does he walk in like, what's wrong with you guys? Why are you crying? Why don't you have faith in me? Get out of the way. All right, watch this. Everyone stand back and watch me fix this. All right, Lazarus, come on out. Is that what he does? He walks in. He sees Mary and Martha, these two two women that are like sisters to him. And they're just weeping and sobbing. And family and friends are just grief-stricken, devastated. And you know what Jesus does? He just weeps with them. Approximately 14 seconds before he raises the man back to life, he stops and he weeps with them. He enters into their grief. See, whatever your picture is about God, God's like, I know it's hard to get my character around. I know there's all these competing ideas. It's hard to get your mind around my character. But look at Jesus. Look at the radiance of my glory. Look at my character through the person of Jesus. That's why we're so hungry to learn more about who Jesus is because we learn of his tenderness and his mercy and his love for us and we learn about who God is. Look at these other descriptors descriptors about Jesus. He says he's the exact imprint of his nature. Do you know what that's saying? That's saying when, when God appeared in the flesh, God didn't become less God on this planet. We're not talking about like some kind of Greek mythology where it's like half man, half God. It's not some kind of like Hercules demigod. What we're talking about is he was fully God in the person of Jesus. He's fully man and fully God in a way our minds can't comprehend. I want you to look at this last thing because this might be the most astounding thing that it said. It's not only the creator God, He's not only visible God, he's not only fully God, but look at this last thing. He says he upholds the universe. By the word of his power. Do you know what that's saying about Jesus? He didn't just kind of put his God responsibilities on the shelf when he came down to earth. He didn't say, okay, Gabriel, I'm going to be down on earth for about 33 years. You're in charge. Okay, don't mess it up. Keep all the planets spinning. I got to go down down to earth for a little bit and I'll I'll, I'll get back with you when I get back here. No, no, he is fully actively god he is still actively god he's keeping everything together together he's holding all molecules together he's holding the universe together he's holding planets in their orbit he's making hearts continue to beat he's actively god in the person of jesus and what's so amazing about god being with us is god restrained himself into this baby in a manger my wife and I uh, have two kids, our youngest, our son, is, his name is Nehemiah, and he's seven months old, and I think having a baby is simultaneously one of the most fun things and one of the most difficult things at the same time, and it's because babies are 100% helpless. When you first have a baby, I mean, they can't even hold their head. So like you're holding this baby and you're trying to like make sure, you can't just like, hey, you know, here's the baby. You, know, you can't do that. You've got to hold their head up. They can't even pick up their head on their own. I mean, think about babies. They can't eat on their own. They, they can't even burp on their own. No belching. Uh, They don't have that ability yet. So you have to force them to burp. They can do nothing on their own. And so it's, man, it is exhausting and it is hard, but it's also one of the most fun things because you see every little detail that they're learning how to do. This past week, Nehemiah scrunched his nose on his own for the first time. We're like, it's a miracle. Get out the camera. He scrunched his nose, okay? You know, in 20 years, we're going to show this to all his friends, okay? Let's take a video of him scrunching his nose. I mean, all these little details that he learns how to do. Like when he was, uh, when he was first learning to hold on to things, you know, babies have no control over their arms. So they're like flailing their arms around like this, you know? And then we'd put something in his, he wanted to chew on something, so he put this little rattle in his hand, but he couldn't get it to his mouth. So he's hitting himself in the face. You know, he just can't even, can't even get it into his mouth, and just recently he learned how to get it into his mouth. I mean, it's a huge victory. You're watching each one of these little things. It's, it's a beautiful thing because they're completely helpless. Now I want you to think about something. What are we celebrating at this time of year? Sometimes we sing these sweet songs. You know, away in the manger, silent night. Oh, there's a little baby You know, sleep in heavenly peace, little baby. And we think it's kind of this nice, sweet song about babies or about sweet baby Jesus. He must have been a cute little baby. Do you know what we're singing about? Do you know what makes this a holy night that we sing about? What makes this a holy infant is that he was Lord at his birth is that the one who's laying there and can't control his arms and moving them around is the one that's holding the universe together with the word of his power. The one who's making these cooing sounds because he can't yet formulate a word is the one who spoke the universe into existence. The one whose glorious beauty would overwhelm us to death is the one who just spit up all over himself. Do you realize what this is? This, what makes this such a precious, unbelievable moment is if Mary and Joseph could grasp Emmanuel, God with us, if they could grasp this moment. They're looking at their creator, the, the awe-inspired awesome being who's holding everything together and he's confined himself to an unbelievably helpless infant it's astounding it's god with us and that should bring a thrill of hope in your life and in your loneliness And you say, why? God, you know, Jesus was here. He was with us. But but what do you mean? How should that bring in a thrill of hope into my present loneliness? Well, I want you to look at one other verse in the book of Matthew. We read at the very beginning of Matthew how at the very beginning it says God with us, but let me show you the last sentence in the entire story of Jesus according to Matthew. It says this, Matthew 28, 20. It says, and behold, this is Jesus' final words. The book closes after this. He says, behold, I am with you. It's the same language. I am with you always to the end of the age. Do you realize what he's saying? He's saying, yes, I was, I was, God was here. God was with us. But he's saying, I am still with you. Jesus' final words, Emmanuel's final words is, I am still with you. I will always be with you. No matter where you're, where you're at, I will enter in to your circumstances. I will be with you, and he is with you right now. Let me ask you, which, what's your story that you need Jesus to show up at? Maybe in this season you're in a storm and the waves are knocking the boat of your life back and forth and you're in a crisis and you're saying, I don't know if I'm going to make it. I'm paddling for shore and I'm alone and I'm paddling for shore and I'm at the same time taking on water and bailing out and I, it is not looking good and I'm, I'm praying and I'm praying and I'm praying. I'm saying, God, when are you going to show up in my crisis and help me? And I'm rowing for shore as fast as I can. And you, you feel stressed and anxious because you feel like you are alone to figure this out. But are you alone in your crisis? Do you know who Jesus is? He's the one that comes walking on the water and gets into the boat with you. He's the one that says, you can have faith because I can calm this storm in an instant. I'm in control. He's with you in your crisis. Maybe you say, no, I'm like the leper. I'm like the leper this morning. I've got something that that is ailing me, something that is hurting me, something that's broken in me that is repellent to everyone else. No one else knows I'm alone in my struggle. I'm alone in that health concern that I have that I can't even articulate my fear and I can't even articulate my struggle and no one else understands. I've got this brokenness in my relationships that no one else could really grasp and I just feel like I'm alone to suffer through this. But Jesus is saying, no, He, he puts his hands, his warm touch, his warm embrace And he says, you're not alone in your hurt and in your suffering. Maybe you say, no, I'm like Mary and Martha and I'm grieving this season. And no one understands my grief. See, this season reminds me of a loss, a deep loss in my life, and I feel so alone. Reminds me of a deep loss that I don't have people around me. It's reminding me of a deep loss and I feel so alone in my pain and in my grief you know who Jesus is? He's the one that weeps with you. That's who Jesus is. But you might say, no, I'm the Samaritan woman. I don't think that Jesus wants to be around me. I don't think anyone wants me. In fact, if you knew my story, if you knew what I've done, if you knew what happened to me many years ago, if you knew my track record, my story, no one would want to be around me. I am tarnished. But you're not alone. You're not alone. In your spiritual brokenness, you're not alone in your pain. You're not alone because of your past. Jesus says, no, I accept you right now, right where you're at. I want to bring healing into your life. See, God with us, the one named Emmanuel, Jesus, God in the flesh, he said, I will always be with you. You say, well, just give me some hope this morning. How do I find hope in this? I want to believe that, but how do I know for sure that that this Jesus is the one that will draw near me? How do I know that he loves me? Because the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, the one that keeps the molecules together in this universe, is the one who gave himself up and sacrificed his life and died for you. Can you think about what that means? He was the one that was mocked and spit upon and beaten and nailed to a cross and died. Can you think of what that means? That means the one who upholds the universe was holding the bone structure of the fist intact as it was hurling towards his face, pummeling the side of his head. He was holding it intact. You realize that means that the one who was being blasphemously mocked was holding the vocal cords together so they could finish their sentence. That means he's the one that as the spit is coming towards his face, he's holding the spit molecules together as it's splashing on the side of his face. You realize that means that the nails that held him to the cross are nails he's holding together. He gave himself up because he loves you. It was God coming here to rescue you. He will never leave you. Maybe this morning you're feeling alone and you're feeling far from God. But I want you to know he's drawn near to you. He's right there. He's not far. And he's saying, just take that step and draw near to me. He's saying today. This morning maybe some of you need to take that step and draw near to God and you need to say to God, "God, Jesus, I believe that you love me that much that you died to wash away my sins and that you want to walk in relationship with me and that you've prepared a place for me in eternity called heaven. And that's by your sacrifice that I'm saved. Maybe you're ready to draw near to Jesus and begin that relationship with him this morning. If that's you, I want to lead you in a prayer where you can begin that relationship. Would you all bow your heads and close your eyes? If that's you, I just want to lead you in a simple prayer this morning to draw near to God and accept what he's done to save you. If that's you, just simply say this, Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for the incredible sacrifice of coming to earth, constraining yourself to to a little baby, then offering yourself up to die on a cross for my sins. Thank you for saving me. I want to follow after you all my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak with somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432- 0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org